I think that the best application of nudges so far and, and moving forward involve you know, intimate collaborations between healthcare professionals and experts who really understand their context and motivation and tools and constraints really well, working with behavioral scientists who have a deep and nuanced understanding of behavioral science. We're working together. Nudging seemed to be all the rage a few years ago, a way of changing individual behaviors to help people make better choices about their diet, exercise, and other habits. A lot of hype ensued. The UK government under Tony Blair even set up a nudge unit. But questions were asked about the efficacy of the approaches used, confusion about what the nudge actually was, and how to turn it all into actual scalable change. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor at the BMJ, and in this podcast, I talk to Craig Fox, Behavioural Scientist at UCLA and author of a new analysis just published on bmj.com, Details Matter, predicting when nudging clinicians will succeed or fail. My name is Craig Fox. I'm a professor of management, psychology, and medicine at UCLA. And um, you've written for us uh, about nudge theory in medicine. Um, and I suppose my initial question is, what is a nudge? Because I think I've absorbed this idea that they are somehow these things that are meant to work unconsciously. Um, you know, healthy food at the checkout, making you choose that instead of the the, the chocolate kind of thing. Um, but there's a point in your article where you talk about the way in which, you know, nudge is built into a social system and that if clinicians mm-hmm. distrust an idea, it won't be picked up, it won't be effective. Sure. So that sort of, that seems to go against that idea of it being unconscious. So, um did I get that totally wrong? What What is a nudge? <laughs> well, let me put things into context, if I might, Duncan. Traditional approaches to policy, including health policy, um, rely on the maybe heroic assumption that doctors and patients are rational actors, that they act as if at least they're maximizing their self-interest. And if you have that model of human behavior, you basically have three tools at your disposal for influencing behavior. One is education. You tell doctors, for instance, what's you know best practice and what's in their best interests, and hopefully they follow it. Uh, secondly, financial incentives, right? Pay for performance. Uh, and then third, regulation. You tell them what they can and cannot do, what they must do, and so forth. Most of these kinds of interventions in a lot of contexts have failed to have the desired effect. You know, doctors are generally well-educated. They know what good behavior is. For instance, when antibiotics are called for and when they're not called for, Pay for performance generally tends to be relatively impotent relative to the uh, salaries that healthcare professionals receive, and regulation is something that they bristle against. So decades of research in social sciences uh, by folks such as uh, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize in 2002 with Amos Tversky, uh, and uh, Richard Thaler, who won it in 2017, 
um, have found that humans fall short of those Olympian standards of rationality in systematic mm -hmm. and predictable ways, right? We have limited attention, limited information processing capacity. We rely on mental shortcuts that sometimes lead us astray. But also we're social animals, as you were kind of alluding to, who adhere to norms. And we want to compare favorably to our peers and receive their approval. Well, the good news is that that opens up a whole new powerful toolkit for influencing people's behavior if you just recognize those sorts of behavioral tendencies. And in fact, this approach was popularized by a book by Thaler and uh, Cass Sunstein uh, that came out in 2008 called Nudge. And people got very excited about the idea of applying these kinds of behavioral principles to nudge behavior, in, in, uh, particularly in policy contexts. Mm. Yeah, in fact, in the, you know about how in the UK there was a nudge unit that was formed uh, as part of the initially part of the, the government um, to, yeah. to try and apply these principles, right? Um, and so the whole idea is applying behavioral insights to nudge people in, in these ways by tweaking uh, choice architecture. So what do I mean by choice architecture? I mean, what's the option set? How is it How are options described? How are people to indicate their choices and so forth? Uh, for instance, the, the, the kind of maybe most famous form of choice architecture that that seems to have a, a large effect in a lot of situations is the strategic designation of, of defaults. We know that if you designate an option as a default from which people can opt out, it tends to be very sticky. For instance, in the U.S., if you want to get people to save more for their retirement, we have these programs that are employer-sponsored called 401k plans. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a problem for a long time that a lot of employees didn't take advantage of them because it's kind of complicated to choose, well, what am I going to invest in for retirement? People kind of put it off and they never actually enroll. Well, they started to automatically enroll employees in and tell them you can opt out if you like, and all of a sudden uh, the enrollment just skyrocketed. Or uh, to give another example, I mentioned social, how we're social animals. Um, social norms have been used. Giving people social information oftentimes can provide a more powerful incentive than providing uh, uh, people with the financial incentives. So uh, giving, for instance, people feedback on their energy consumption relative to their neighbors can actually get people to start consuming more in line with their, their neighbors subsequently. And, and, and health science has become like the latest frontier for applying these kinds of insights. Um, but uh, maybe getting back to your question, it's, it's not uh, a, a fixed science like physics. It's not like a medical preparation where I give you a you know, I give you a pill and I know what kind of a physiological effect it's likely to have on you. Um, these kinds of nudges are inherently social interventions, right? Mm, and from what you're saying, these nudges, nudges is just a, a very broad category then of, yes. of things. Yeah. Now, um, you mentioned there the book by um, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, and that was published in 2008. And that was really, I suppose, the the big launch of this as a, a discipline right. that people were interested in. Um, no, that's only 12 years ago. And I just wonder, right. it's a fairly new field. How mature is it at this point? You know, do you have kind of tools um, to be able to, sophisticated tools for doing research in it? Are there still huge areas of, of uncertainty? You know, where yeah. are we with, with nudge theory? Well, relative to health science or physical science, you know, behavioral science is relatively young. That said, we've known about these, a lot of these behavioral principles for 50, 60, 70 years. Mm. 
Um, what's relatively new is that it's matured to the point where we have a little bit more confidence in applying it at scale to influence people's uh, behaviors in the field. And particularly in, in the health science domain, it's really only been happening for you know, five or six years um, where there's been a lot of interest in applying it there. So yes, it's, we're, we're still learning. We're still learning from successes and failures how to do it better. But as mentioned, Duncan, you know, these kinds of nudges are, you know, they're educated guesses, they're rules of thumb. So I know a particular principle about, for instance, the impact of defaults or the impact of presenting you with social information, but the devil is always in the details. Mm. And that's really the, the kind of the point of the article of how you administer it. And, and sometimes, you know, you read an article and you get excited about a particular nudge. So you might read that providing social feedback um, can be successful in influencing a particular behavior. And then you try and apply it in a new context in a slightly different way where you're not really paying attention to all those details of implementation and it doesn't work. Mm. And that reminds me a lot of some, uh, we do a lot of things around improvement science in in healthcare. And, um, you know, that idea that you can't just pick up uh, a, a program that's worked in one hospital and right. drop it into a different hospital or a, a, I don't know, a GP surgery or something and expect it to behave in the same way. Um, you know, that, that just hasn't been the case. So it seems very similar. Is there something to do with the fact that it's about social systems and, and behavior? Yeah, um, it's, it's about a lot of things. One, what, the first thing to remember is that nudges are subjective, right? I've got to grab your attention. I've got to facilitate a particular interpretation of what's going on. You have to form an intention and follow through on that intention. And any link in that chain gets disrupted or, you know, the application doesn't quite fit to this new environment and it may not work as it did before. Uh, I mean, I could give an example, one of the examples we use in the paper. So there was a a study that was done by uh, Daniela Meeker and colleagues and full disclosure, I was a co-author on that paper. (laughs) Um, where we were concerned with antibiotic overprescription, which, as you know, can uh, lead to the uh, evolution of superbugs that are antibiotic resistant. It's a major health problem. So our approach, one of our approaches was to send monthly emails every month for 18 months, giving feedback to clinicians, telling them either that you are or you're not a top performer, right? Top performer was defined by you're in the top decile of people in your region in terms of your uh, rate of inappropriate antibiotic prescribing, right? In terms of this relative to the diagnosis, right? You don't want to prescribe antibiotics for a non-bacterial diagnosis. So we sent them these emails and um, lo and behold, we started at baseline with a 20% rate of inappropriate prescribing for acute respiratory infections at baseline. And after 18 months, we got them down to less than 4%. And in fact, even after we turned off the intervention and stopped sending the emails, 12 months later, it sustained. Mm. So that's very exciting. Then another group comes along in Switzerland and they say, okay, we're going to apply something similar. And they do a large sales study in which they send performance information relative to peers to Swiss clinicians and it fails. And in fact, there are observers who looked at this and said, well, I guess not so fast, right? This is an immature science. Maybe we shouldn't be so excited about nudging, right? In fact, there was one uh, article called Is Peer Pressure's Potential to Improve Physician Performance Overrated? And they conclude that people are so eager for behavioral economics and related fields to solve health problems, they get carried away. Well, we saw this and we said, wait a minute, not so fast. Let's look at the differences. 
between these contexts and the, let's look at the differences between how these things are applied. And it turns out the Swiss study, first of all, it sends this big uh, performance dashboard by mail or you, you can click on online to find it. And it's filled with all kinds of information on prescribing and other things. And the peer comparison is only a small part of it. So if you're not grabbing people's attention, you know, you're not, what, what, what hope do you have of having a successful intervention? Moreover, it was a quarterly thing as opposed to a monthly thing. Whereas in the Meeker et al. study, right, the emails, it's in the subject line. You're not a top performer. You are a top performer. You know, what could grab your attention and curiosity more than that? Um, secondly, uh, the, uh, the uh, Hemkins, uh, the uh, Swiss study, uh, was all about an antibiotic prescribing relative to your peers overall. Um, whereas the, uh, the Meeker study was about diagnosis, uh, diagnosis and appropriate prescribing. So, you know, if I tell you you're prescribing more antibiotics than your peers, you might say, well, I've got a different kind of practice. It's all appropriate, right? You can rationalize. Whereas if, if you're told it's inappropriate, it's not, you know, that's, that's harder to argue with. Um, you know, and the Swiss study was comparing your, your performance to the average person. The, the, the Meeker study was aspirational comparing you to top performers. Well, all these kinds of differences in the details of implementation can be critical and behavioral scientists know that and anticipate that. And, uh, and if you're not, if you're not sensitive to those nuances, it's, it's something that's easy to miss. Yeah. So, you know, going to a new country is one thing, uh, going to a new set of clinicians is another thing. For instance, if you're trying to get people to uh, prescribe fewer opioids postoperatively, well, change the default setting. Great. But there are some specialties we know where they're going to be resistant to that, like orthopedics, where you're, you're, you're trying to relieve people's pain. Um, you're, you, you may be more resistant to reducing the, the prescription. All these things, you know, the nudges are really educated guesses. And those educated guesses need to be tested in a new context before you scale them up. And so what does that mean for, you know, people in the healthcare sphere if they want to introduce a, a nudge or a, uh, something into their system that they, they think, you know, I've got this problem, this might be uh, a way yeah. of doing it. How do, you know, there's a, there's a lot to, to tie up there. Well, yes, we have to be observers of the context. I think that a, Traditionally, a lot of a lot of social scientists have come up with their key theories, and they want to know why why are the professionals not applying these great theories we have of human behavior? And I think part of the reason is they're taking the wrong approach. They're thinking about their theory and how can I apply it. But we make the most progress when we take a problem driven approach, where we look at the problem context. You know, so I told you I was a collaborator on the the Meeker et al. study on antibiotic over prescription. You know, the first thing I did when they approached me for advice on interventions was I talked to my brother who is a physician <laughs> and I asked him about, well, why do you think physicians over prescribe antibiotics? And he started to talk about the, the pressures and the, you know, how you want to, for instance, satisfy your patients and patients demand it. If they're going to go to the trouble mm -hmm. and expense of seeing a physician, they want something that they couldn't have gotten over the counter and, you know, we start talking to people who understand the health record system and how that can be modified. And, you know, you get an, you need to first get an intimate understanding of the context, of the constraints, of the tools that are at your disposal, of things that have been tried and failed, like pay for performance. And then, only then can you start to think about, okay, well, what's worked in behavioral, on the behavioral science side? And, and you come to some synthesis. So I think that the best application of nudges so far and, and moving forward involve 
you know, intimate collaborations between healthcare professionals and experts who really understand their context and motivation and tools and constraints really well, working with behavioral scientists who have a deep and nuanced understanding of behavioral science, working together and, and continuing to learn over time. Because as I say, the, you know, that provides the educated guesses that we pilot and once the pilots work in a new context, then only then and only then can we scale them up to have maximal impact on a on a on a at large scale. Now, in your article, um, you do say that uh, uh, behavioural interventions directed at healthcare professionals seem especially promising, um, and I just wondered why that was, um, and if it's to do with medicine. You know, as a as a profession, which is all about that lifelong learning, assimilating new information into your practice, etc. Um, or if it's more to do with maybe the specific tools in medicine. So you know, you've got the ability to do measurement, like you um, you were talking about in that study, through electronic um, medical records and things. Yeah. Um, so I, is that a bit of both? Is it one or the other? Well, the reason I'm particularly excited about targeting healthcare professionals um, is is the context in which they make decisions. You know, if you're trying to get a patient to control their hypertension, for instance, what do you have to control? You know, are they taking their medication? Are they exercising? Are they measuring their blood pressure? How are they eating? Uh, you know, what, what kind of exercise are they getting, and so forth? You know, and there and that's the result of numerous decisions that they're making throughout the day, right? in a very complex environment. Now, healthcare professionals, on the other hand, have probably at least the same impact on public health, but oftentimes it's a single decision that's made um, following a scripted workflow in a controlled clinical environment that's electronically mediated. Here is a perfect context for tweaking the choice architecture in ways that can be have a, a really huge uh, outsized impact. I mean, I'll give you one example. We talked about the faults. Uh, Mel Hotra and colleagues a few years back had a simple intervention where they were trying to get uh, doctors in a particular setting to uh, use more generic uh, prescriptions as opposed mm. to branded prescriptions, which of course saves patients and, and insurance companies money. Um, so what did they do? They simply rewrote the code in the electronic medical record system such that when the physician wrote a branded prescription, it automatically rewrote it as the generic equivalent but the physician still had the freedom of choice to opt out. Well, in one month, this simple change, you know, in, in, in a little bit of code in the EMR uh, led to an increase of 40% generic prescription to 96%. Huge impact, small intervention. Because the healthcare professionals are making a single decision, according to a scripted workflow, it's electronically mediated, really easy to tweak, and lo and behold, you can have a huge effect. Hmm. It seems to me that, you know, the, these small things having a, a large effect, and especially given the complexity that we've talked about and the fact that um, this is within a social system that, again, it's in itself yeah. is complex, there might be the potential here to have what you think is a, a small, simple intervention to push behaviour in one way, which would then end up having a really unexpected consequence, <laughs> a potential negative one. Have we seen anything like that happening? Sure. Um, well, for instance, there's one that we uh, we mentioned in the paper, which is uh, uh, Kip Delgado and his colleagues decided they were going to try and reduce opioid prescriptions. Um, and, and here's how they did it. It was these uh, 
it was an emergency department study where they just simply rewrote the script so that it defaults to 10 tablets when you're prescribing new opioids. And it was successful in one sense that it reduced the median from 11.3 pills to 10. But not only were people, you know, I mean, the, the way it worked was people were just more likely to prescribe exactly 10. So if you were otherwise going to prescribe 15, 18, then that's good, right? It's reducing opioid prescriptions. But it actually turns out people were less likely to prescribe fewer than 10. Mm. So the patients who were only going to get a couple of pills actually were more likely to get more pills, which means more likely to become addicted to opioids, right? Um, so sometimes, you know, you've got these unintended consequences or, you know, I'll give you another example. You, we were talking earlier about the social context, right? So, you know, nudges, some nudges operate on a subconscious level, but some are a little bit more conscious, especially among smart healthcare professionals who are thinking people, they're trying to figure out what's going on here. Why did the administrator change the setting? You know, one thing we know about, again, about defaults is if you want uh, more citizens to donate their organs, to consent to organ donation, what do you do? You, you make it an opt out. And in uh, the Netherlands a few years back, the legislature was discussing doing this and people got wind of it and they went on to the online registry and started to take their names off of it in anticipation of that at a rate that was about 14 times the normal rate mm. because they distrusted the choice architect, right? They're thinking, wait a minute, these guys are going to use some Jedi mind tricks to manipulate us. And in protest, they, they withdrew their consent. So it backfired. So you need to pay attention uh, not only to kind of calibrating to the new domain and thinking about not just the overall effect, but how there's going to be a different effect of an intervention on different subgroups. But you also have to think about the social context and how people are going to interpret it. And if the hospital administrator, for instance, is distrusted by healthcare professionals and there's a change, they're going to say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Uh, may, maybe, I, maybe I need to be careful here. There's a long history in behavioral science of resistance to persuasion. If we think others are trying to manipulate us, then we pull back. So, I mean, it suggests to me a little bit more transparency, maybe a little bit more voice to clinicians who are going to be affected to build trust between administrators and those who are targeted by these interventions. Mm. Now, talking about enduring, I mean, earlier I mentioned um, that sort of uh, improvement um, science that goes on a long time, yeah. a lot of medicine. And a big thing that's happened um, recently in medicine is um, this move to be much more patient-centered, the way services are designed, um, the way clinicians interact with patients, or, or perhaps even think about a diagnosis or, or a treatment um, kind of pathway. We've campaigned on it in the BMJ, and you know, it seemed like there was, there was good headway. There'd been a, this fundamental shift. Then along comes... COVID, and this totally stresses the system. Um, and one of the first things that seems to have been lost is that patient-centeredness. We kind of reverted back to making decisions um, away from patients, not including them. Um, this reversion, sorry, this reversion to this old behaviour. And I'm just wondering what, if anything, that tells us about, about nudges, um, especially against a, a strong headwind. Yeah. Well, let me say two things. One, despite what I said that, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about targeting healthcare professionals, sometimes you can target both. Uh, for instance, we did a study where we put uh, posters in uh, examination rooms 
uh, where the clinician would make a public commitment to responsible antibiotic uh, stewardship that they weren't going to prescribe them. They're not called for. And they signed their name to it and they had a photograph on there and it was in the waiting room. And so they're making, not only are they making a public commitment not to break that, but, but also it's visible to the patient. So when you talk about shared decision-making, I think part of the impact, part of the reason that was successful and it reduced inappropriate prescribing by about 20% um, is, is the effect that it had on the physicians. Making a public commitment makes them more likely to follow through, but also part of it is on the, the patients. They're probably less likely to ask for inappropriate antibiotics when they see the poster in the waiting room. So you can target both groups simultaneously. One of the things that gets me excited about the impact of COVID is it actually can provide, I think, open up new opportunities because now you have uh, communications that are channeled through, um, through telemedicine interactions, right? So now not only are uh, the, the healthcare professionals interacting with a tightly scripted kind of choice architecture mediated by electronic medical records, but also patients are getting targeted, channeled, scripted communications. So now we can we can be a little bit more uh, strategic in the choice architecture that we set up, not only for the healthcare professionals, but also for the patients in a way that, that maybe helps align their interests. It can be used to educate patients. It can be used to, uh, to, to subtly nudge them to do things that are maybe more in their best interest. It can help them uh, be more likely to follow through. It can help them. You know, one of the things that a lot of us are looking at right now is how do you get people to get vaccinations, mm. which are super important not only for the seasonal flu, but once we have a, a COVID vaccination, how do you overcome skepticism and inertia to get, you know, to build up more herd immunity by getting more people to, uh, to vaccinate? Well, now that we're interacting more electronically instead of face-to-face, in fact, rather than a challenge, maybe it opens up an opportunity to do that more successfully. You've been listening to Craig Fox, author of the analysis article, Details Matter, predicting when nudging clinicians will succeed or fail, now published on bmj.com. I'll put links in the podcast text as always. If you're interested in clinician behaviour, then you might be interested in our BMJ Live conference which this year, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we've turned into a free online event for all healthcare professionals, wherever you are in the globe. We'll be running sessions on leadership skills, well-being, career development, and you can access a variety of recruiters, all from the comfort of your own home. Find out more and sign up free today at live.bmj.com. That's it for this podcast, but we'll be back later in the week with more from Deep Breath In, looking at flu, and another one of our Talk Evidence podcasts. Until then, I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.